Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host, and for today's episode, Richard Marsh's The Beatle. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past. And this week, a fascinating one that really kind of ties into the mystical nature of the episode. I actually kind of have to explain a bit of the novel to really hammer home the curiosity of this mantelpiece moment. The novel today is based in London in the Fulham Hammersmith area and even mentions roads such as Lily Road, the Brompton Road, areas such as Earl's Court if you're familiar with this area at all. And this novel actually concerns itself largely about the threats and the curiosities of the East. And in the case of this novel, the intrigue surrounding the ancient Egyptians and their supposed magical powers that they had perhaps unlocked. Anyone that knows this very specific part of the world might know that there is a cemetery called the West Brompton Cemetery, which makes up one of the larger seven cemeteries of London, which actually for a side note is where Beatrix Potter used to live and a lot of her characters are names stolen from headstones within the cemetery, but also within the cemetery there is a tomb, to put it bluntly, that looks like the TARDIS from Doctor Who, and this is the tomb of a one Hannah Courtois, 1784 to 1849, who was this society woman and is now buried in this grave, also being interred with two of her unmarried daughters. And the tomb is, it's lavish, it's adorned in Egyptian symbols. The tomb, interestingly, has been called a working time machine, so do with that information what you will. Now, I don't believe it's an actual time machine, but I just found it so wonderfully fun now because it adds a validity to the novel that the Curiosities of Egypt was actually this sort of strongly felt idea, not just on a general scale, but quite specifically to this pocket of London as well, where the book concerns itself. So go and look it up if you're interested. It's a fascinating little piece to read about. And actually, you know what? I'm going to walk there and I'm going to take a picture of it and I'm going to use a picture of the tomb as the tomb at the tomb as a picture for this episode so if you've seen the picture on instagram you know what i'm talking about housekeeping as always all the scripts from the episode are available on my website just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod so head along they are all free for use for all to enjoy okay on with the show jumping into a horror story that initially outsold dracula both being released in the same year. A book that is a classic example of Victorian supernatural gothic fiction. Very hyper-specific genre, I know. I think I'm going to kick things off with an overview today. The Beatle is set in 19th century London, and it's told through the perspective of four different people. Essentially, and it's kind of difficult to sum up, but it's about a shape-shifting beetle that takes form of either a man or a woman, depending on who it is talking to, and the Beatles' plan is to sacrifice human life. There is a bit of mystery to it. The motives that drive the actions of the Beatle are murky. The novel is wrapped up in Egyptian mythology and the occult as to what it actually is, and 
I am so aware that what I've just said is vague and it's a very, you know, vague overview, but in truth, this is a vague novel. Smokescreens as to the truth, not at all helped by a slightly ambiguous ending. So let's have a little backstory about this novel before I dive into a review of it. Now, I'm a big fan of Dracula. Yes, I will do an episode on it. Yes, I know when it will come and yes, it will be this year. So when I read about a book that initially outsold Dracula, I had to at least learn a little about it, if not read it, and I of course did both those things. It was released in the same year as Dracula, that being 1897, and as I said, this novel originally outsold Dracula. It was originally published as a serial under a different name, that being The Perils of Paul Lessingham, The Story of a Haunted Man. For context, Paul Lessingham is a member of the British Parliament whom the Beatle is targeting for its attacks, the first act being stealing some letters through the body of a possessed man that the Beatle ensnares. Interestingly though, Paul doesn't actually feature that much throughout the book, but Marsh clearly thought of him as the main character, or at least the character whom the story revolves around. After its initial release through serialisation, it was collated and published as a book under this new name, The Beatle, and... Look, I had never heard of this book, and it was immensely popular and continued to be immensely popular and was in print up until about the 1960s, however it was only recently that it started to really gain the attention of literary critics as one of the founding pillars that is the gothic that the gothic genre rests upon. But let me say this, and this might be brutal, but it is my thoughts, it's my podcast, I can do what I want. The fact that this novel originally outsold Dracula is a bit like those people who sprint at the start of a marathon just to say they have led. Maybe that's a bit harsh because this novel didn't choose to outsell Dracula, but I think in the wider annals of literature and history, Dracula is just a better book. I would happily debate that if you disagree with me, but you know, I've said it now, it's too late. The story started strong, the writing style was easy and accessible, it didn't feel dated to that it wasn't relatable and I fell headfirst into the mystery. I think something that added sugar to my sentiments was it was exploring a part of the world in London that I am very familiar of and so to see and read the street names is always sort of that added bit of fun to the story. But yes, I immediately was taken with the mystery, this androgynous thing that has the power to power of hypnotism and can make humans act to its will was always going to tickle me and the mystery actually carries the novel for basically 99% of the story, because mysteries are fun and you don't want them to end early. Now because the story is told from the perspective of four viewpoints, there is that added layer of mystery and tension. Because of the subjective viewpoints, characters become unreliable. And that's one of the wonderful things I found reading this book. You're not tethered to any character per se, and so you never quite are able to grasp the novel. You almost feel like you're clutching at smoke, because the different characters have personal agendas, you get different views depending on who is telling the story. One recurring theme throughout the story is not only the identity of the beetle, but also the sex of it when it takes human form. There is this slightly funny quote by Sidney Atherton, one of the point of view speakers, as he addresses his mistakes of his uncertainty, and the quote goes, One startling fact nudity revealed that I had been egregiously mistaken on the question of sex. My visitor was not a man, but a woman, and judging from the brief glimpse which I had of her body, by no means old or ill-shaped either. I thought it was just such this, I thought it was just this, you know, really funny line given the situation, the awareness that something ungodly is lurking and maybe even haunting them, but nothing can stop those urges. 
Words such as egregious, as if confusing a shape-shifting beetle for a man when it's a woman, is the greatest sin of what's happening here. I, I, I love that. There is a bit of fun and humor in this book, and it's like it's almost like an awareness to the absurdity of it all. But there are also heavy, you know, very serious aspects as well. There is quite a socio-political aspect of this novel about the threats, and I say that in inverted commas, though you can't see that, but the threats of the East and Eastern immigration upon England, constantly calling to or speaking about the Arabs of Earl's Court and how they gather about and they are sure to be the downfall of British idealism, etc., etc., etc. We've heard it all before. It's still going on now. And it's curious because it was released the same year as Dracula, which also has political undertones about the threat from the East upon England and London. It's clearly some genuine tension people were feeling at the time. I'm not saying that it's right, of course, because I don't view immigration as a threat, but it is curious to see how the political world of the contemporary day was explored through the supernatural aspect of horror fiction. Another similar aspect of the novel to Dracula is the literary theory that was prevalent through British fiction at this time is the theme of a gothic wanderer, someone who has committed a transgression in their past in an attempt to create a form of paradise in their world, and so the story becomes their path to redemption through the actions, offering a polarizing story that explores the morality of the initial transgression. And this is kind of hinted at through this quote. Take my advice, don't appreciate any man too highly. In the book of every man's life, there is a page which he would wish to keep turned down. Now, it's a wonderful quote, but the Beatle doesn't actually have this in it. Paul Lessingham is the one whom the Beatle wants revenge upon, though we learn that Paul's past isn't concealing some darkness that he embellished in or mistook for fortune. It basically is a case of wrong place, wrong time, and not from the actions of Paul, and so the entire plot becomes a little unstuck. But... You can scrape past this with just the simple idea that maybe this revenge beetle is just a dick and wants to enact revenge because why not? Revenge is fun and Richard Marsh wants to tell a story. Now, does this mean it's a bad story? Yes and no, I guess. The writing is still good. The story is interesting enough to warrant a read. I would liken it to Edgar Allan Poe's mystery novels and the character Dupin. Dupin is the first ideal in literature of this sort of knowing detective, and that would then go into feed great characters such as Sherlock and Poirot. The Poe stories are perhaps a little lacking and miss the mark just a touch, but as a foundational story, they are curious and important to remember and study, and I feel similar towards The Beetle. You can see Marsh is piecing together different narrative aspects to create and fuel later horror novels, but I do think he misses the mark slightly. When I was studying literature at university, there was a gothic horror class that I didn't do, and I think I regret that because it's such a fascinating genre, especially in the present day. I like I, you know, I'd love to go back and with this novel in mind and talk about it, about how it contributes to the genre. But I will say, however, I do think it's just plain rotten luck that this novel came out the same year as Dracula. But I do think it's curious that they are quite similar in their portrayal of the Eastern immigration. But also the fact that the cemetery has the grave of Hannah Courtois, because it shows there really must have been some collective curiosity to, curiosity towards it all, and it's fascinating to be able to look backwards and pull these threads together. So what would I rate this novel out of 5? For me it's a 2.5. If you are deep into the literature game, then yeah, check it out at some point if you're a fan of gothic horror fiction, especially British gothic horror fiction, then yes, you'll probably enjoy reading this and get something out of it. So, you know what to do. 
So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading Appian's Civil Wars. So it's uh, it's a bit of a non-fiction one today. Basically, Appian was a Greek historian with Roman citizenship. He was born in 95 AD. He wrote basically a larger Roman history that was lost. And all we have now is this section of the Civil Wars that loosely covers a period from the Gracchan tributes right through to the rise and murder of Caesar and then the events of the Second Triumvirate just before forming the forming of the Roman Empire, which I am sure we are all familiar with in some way. It's very dense. Large, large parts are perhaps not needed for, for, for my own personal sort of readings because I'm here for the juicy politics and wars of Caesar, but it's good to see the threads and inklings of society collapsing upon itself only to rise like a phoenix from its own destruction, its own ashes. So that's what I'm reading this week, a spot of Roman history. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today to take us away, I think a bit of William Blake. And he writes, To see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour.